it's never a good idea to continue to go against God. You will lose that battle every time. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. hung out in 2 Samuel 7 last week. That was where we, we stayed in just that one chapter because it's really pertinent to all of Scripture. It really sets up the Davidic line as the Messianic line. It makes Jesus' connection to David really important. It helps us understand the rest of what Scripture is pointing to because the Messiah is so often called the son of David. That gets set up in chapter 7. But now we are moving on after that moment after David has this sort of awe moment with Nathan and and God, he now moves into a period of of conquest, and we're going to see some of the best moments of David's reign. Uh, Some of the best years of David's life are we're going to discuss tonight. So we're going to try to get through chapters 8 through 10. I'm going to do my best. So starting in Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, After this, meaning what we had just talked about, the covenant that David took with God through the prophet Nathan, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methag Ammah from the hand of the Philistines. So this is really, the Philistines had been a thorn in the Israelite side since Joshua moved them into the promised land, and David subdued them. This is a huge victory for them. This is a huge blessing from God onto Israel, and it comes at the hands of David. This is, you know, part of the reason that David is so venerated outside of just the scriptural piece, but the fact that he actually subdued the biggest and largest enemies of Israel during his time. And so, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured them, those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. So Moab has been consistently enemies of Israel, and David really takes care of that, but he saves some, and he brings them and makes them servants in his house. Interesting thing about this is that Ruth, Ruth, David's grandmother, was a Moabitess, and so he has some connection to Moab. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, of Rehob, king of Zobah. And he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. 
David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. So he, did, he destroyed this army, and he conquered them, and they had all of these horses and foot soldiers that David defeated. And then of all of the horses that were left over, David only kept 100 well, enough for a hundred chariots for himself. And that, you might go, why? What's the deal? Well, all through the king's reign, whenever you want to see what they do positively and what they do negatively in God's eyes, refer back to Deuteronomy 17. One of the commands that God has for his kings is to not take on too many horses. Horses were a sign of war. They were a sign of power. They increased your army. Now, David could have taken all of those horses and increased his army, and he already had a powerful army with God on his side. He was conquering these neighboring lands. But David follows God's plan. And basically, he puts himself in a position where he's safe, but not invulnerable. He still is in a position to rely on God as he conquers instead of becoming so powerful that he relies on himself. Does that make sense? So he's, he's not relying on his own power and the power of whom he's conquered and what he's taken. He's still relying on God's power in his life. So that's why. And that's part of the reason that the kings weren't supposed to take way too much in taxes. They weren't supposed to take on extra wives. They weren't supposed to take on horses. They were supposed to follow God's law, rely on him, and be under God's authority and be in a position where they still rely on him rather than being reliant on their own power. So when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Beta and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer. King David took a large amount of bronze. So we just talked about how David wasn't taking the horses, but now you have him taking all of this precious metal. What's the deal with that? Well, David's not taking it for himself. So what we learned about in chapter 7 was David's desire as he had this palace of cedar built for him by the king of Tyre. He looked out and he could see the tabernacle. And he goes, I live in this beautiful palace. God lives in a tent. I want to build God a house. And God responds and says, I didn't ask you to do that. Uh, I'm going to make you a house. But he's told that his son would build the permanent structure, right? That his son would build God's house. Right, that his son would be the one whom God sets up a kingdom forever. And so David takes that, and he says, well, my son's going to build a temple, so I'm going to make sure he has everything funded to do that. And so David, even though he doesn't get to build God a temple, he dedicates sort of the rest of his time to making sure that that can happen. And so he's not taking plunder for himself, he's taking plunder for the temple, and he's dedicating it to God. And so he's trying to make sure that this goes towards God. It's not for himself. It's not to enrich himself. This is for the temple that he doesn't even get to build. 
When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toai sent Joram, his son, to King David and greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toai. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated those to the Lord, along with his silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he had subdued. So right there, David is taking in all of this, and even the gifts that he gets, he's setting aside and he's storing it for the building of the temple, because David is dedicating all of these resources to the future and to God, not for himself. Now from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and David himself a name, uh, made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put gar- garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Remember, Edom is the other name given to Esau, Jacob's brother. And so these are relatives of Israel. So he doesn't really conquer them physically, but he does overtake them, which is exactly what was stated in the book of Genesis, that this would happen, that the older would serve the younger, right? So not only does this happen with Jacob and Esau, this literally happens with the nations. The nation of Edom becomes a servant of Israel under David's rule. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. This is David's nephew. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Keralites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers or administrators. And so chapter 8 is really just sort of a list of David's conquering and the spoil that he gets from conquer and what he does with it. His response is he doesn't take much for himself, but he does take for the temple to offer to God, um, to a temple he's not even going to get to build. But then in chapter 9, we get a break from this story and we move into David's personal life. And this is at the height of David's life, at the height of his victory, right? So David is conquering all the lands that Joshua failed to conquer. He has gotten this covenant from God that his son is going to be setting up the kingdom forever, which is ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. All of this is going for him. He can't lose. God is on his side. He's winning at every turn. And he's at the height of his king, of his kingship. And this is the story. So David said, is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David, at the height of his rule, is remembering a promise he made to Jonathan, his best friend, and he's looking to live out that promise. He made a covenant with Jonathan that he would take care of Jonathan's family. And so now he's saying, is there anyone left in Saul's house that I can help for for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. 
So the king said, David, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. The king, then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir to the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. So this is the picture. Now Saul and Jonathan had died in battle. At the moment that they died in battle, and the news came to Mephibosheth's nurse, she picked him up and tried to run him out of the house because she thought his life was in danger. In doing so, somehow he got injured and became paralyzed in the legs. His legs are use useless. And he's kind of been in hiding ever since. And now David, who has replaced Saul as the king of Israel, is at the height of his rule. He's conquering lands. He's, he's taken over not just the rest of Israel, but also land surrounding Israel. And Mephibosheth is an heir to Saul. And in ancient practices, if there was an heir to a previous king and you had taken over that kingdom, you would get rid of that entire family line. You would kill them because you didn't want anyone challenging your right to the throne. And so this is probably what's running through Mephibosheth's head right now. He is scared because he understands how the world works. He might not understand how David's going to work through God, but he knows how the world works. And what happens in these monarchies and someone takes over is they don't want anyone challenging their power and anyone challenging their throne. So what does Mephibosheth do? He lies prostrate at David's feet and says, I'm your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. So David's response is to follow through on the covenant he made with Jonathan and not to hurt Mephibosheth, but to bless him and say, you're going to eat at the king's table. I'm going to restore the land in Benjamin that you had from Saul, and you're going to get everything that was originally coming to you, basically other than the throne. And so David is blessing him. Verse 8, then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I. And he's calling himself this. Mephibosheth clearly does not have a lot of self-esteem, and he feels useless because he's paralyzed. He's unable to do the, the role of what a man would do in this society. He's unable to fulfill it, and he doesn't see himself as worthy of anything, and he doesn't understand what he's doing in front of the king. A king he thought was going to kill him and now this king he thought was going to kill him is saying, you're going to eat at my table. You're going to get blessed. I'm going to bless your socks off, and I'm going to take care of you because your father, who would have been the rightful king if he didn't die in that battle. Verse 9, And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. 
Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so your servant will do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Now I read this, and it, it makes me think of Jesus in a lot of ways. So David, he's the rightful ruler. He's taken over the throne. He has every right to destroy this family line. And it would have been the practice of the ancient world. And he looks at this person who's paralyzed, broken down. He, he's nothing in the society. All power, according to his family name, has been removed from him because Saul's line was removed from the throne of Israel. And he's called before the king, and the king elevates him to his table. And all I could think of when I was reading this, preparing for today, was Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Because Jesus said to the disciples, as he was doing it, that no servant is above his master. But look at what Jesus was doing as he's saying that. Right? saying no servant is above his master. The disciples were servants of Jesus. They were his students. They were under his authority. But Jesus lifted them up and cared for them in such a way. David is the king of Israel, and he has every right to end this family line. And he would have been doing what the world had always done. And instead, he elevates Mephibosheth to the king's table. This person who is looked down on by society and who was connected to a really corrupt king that people didn't like. And he elevates him, and he brings him in to, his, to sit at the king's table. And that's just a parallel I can't get out of my head. Chapter 10. This will be the last chapter for tonight. It happened after this, the king of the people Ammon, of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David's going to pay tribute to this dead king um, as this new king has risen. He's going to show him kindness. And David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? What's happening is the new king is getting bad advice. And the reason he's getting bad advice is because, again, people are looking at the king of Israel as though he's going to act like the kings of the rest of the earth. They see a political change, a difficulty establishing yourself on the throne, someone who's experiencing grief because his father died, and they think this is a great time to attack. That's what the rest of the world would have done at that time. David did not do that. David actually sent peacemakers and comforters to this king, but his servants aren't paying attention to how the king of Israel has acted up to this point or what he has done or what his track record is. They treat him like he's one of the rest of the world, and they say, do you think that that's really what's going on? Or is he just, is this a power play? And he's trying to spy on your house so that he can take over. And this bad advice leads to a bad outcome. Therefore, 
Hanun took David's servants, shaved half off, off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now, David doesn't retaliate. He just cares for his men and says, grow back your beards so that you don't have to come back in shame. Get some new clothes. Come back when you're not going to look shameful. These people shamed David's men when he was trying to comfort the king. And after they did this, David doesn't retaliate. But verse 6 happens. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Machah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtab and Machah, where they themselves were by themselves in the field. So what they do? They gathered an army, and then they gathered neighboring mercenaries to fight for them, because they were going to attack David. And David hears about it, and he has, sends out his general with his best soldiers to investigate what's going on. So instead of fixing the problem and saying David didn't retaliate, maybe I should send a messenger to David and say, I made a mistake, let's create peace. David instead hears about the fact that they're gathering an army to attack him. What has David done? Nothing. So he sends out Joab, verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. So what happens? They gather against David. David sends out his army. The Israelites win. The armies retreat. And one of the armies says, now that we've retreated, let's regather and attack Israel again. It's never a good idea to continue to go against God. You will lose that battle every time, as the enemies of David are finding out. David is not doing anything to stir this up. This all started because David did something kind. How ironic is that? So Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David, 
and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon any more. David reaches out and does something kind. And because of bad advice, tens of thousands of people were lost. Because David simply protected his people. I guess the moral of that story is, make sure the advice you're getting is good and not in opposition to God, because you'll never win that battle. And this is really the peak of of David's life. Where we move on from here, we start to see David's failures. But what we've seen tonight of David's life, of David's victory, it's at its height, and it reminds me of the humility of Jesus when he said, no servant is above his master, but at the same time he washes their feet and elevates him to the table, just as David elevates Mephibosheth to the king's table someone who was looked down on by society and the son of a king who was corrupt. Now, it's a good thing that in the the chapter we talked about last week, the covenant that God gave to David was unconditional. And it didn't matter how the rest of David's reign went. God made this promise to David, and because of that promise, we have a savior. Because if the rest of this book had anything to do with God keeping his promise, David would have failed. But this week we get to celebrate his victory. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this section of scripture. Thank you for the stories of David's victory and his humility, his willingness to keep his word um, and his love uh, towards Jonathan extending beyond into his family line. Help us to see what we can glean and, and learn from this, how we can treat our enemies, how we can treat those who are looked down on, how we're called to be the light of the world and to follow your example who elevated your disciples to your table and you washed their feet even though you are the master. You laid down your life for us even though you are the master. Help us to understand what it means that if you are Lord of our life but you laid down your life on our behalf, what we can do to serve you properly with that in mind. In Jesus' name, amen.